We want to focus with you this evening on the portion read to you, and particularly verses 17 and 18 of chapter 7 and verse 4 of chapter 8. Genesis 7, 17 and 18, and 8 verse 4. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed, ever increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. With God's help, our theme tonight is the ark preserved in the flood. The ark, the ark being, of course, a symbol of the church. It's also a symbol of Christ. But we could say it's a church in Christ. The ark preserved in the flood. First, the ark born up. Verse 17, B, and bear up the ark. The waters increased and bear up the ark. Second, the ark carried along. Verse 18b, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And third, the ark resting. Chapter 8, verse 4, rested upon the mountains of Ararat. So the ark preserved in the flood, the ark borne up, carried along, and resting. Last week, you remember, boys and girls, that we focused on the door of the ark. Well, tonight, we want to focus on the ark itself and to appreciate God's wonderful preservation of the ark. We need to understand a number of facts about the ark. Last time, we did mention that the ark was 450 feet long the size of one and a half football fields, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Now, being constructed that way, the ark was six times as long as it was wide, which builders tell us make it very difficult to overturn because wave forces of equal magnitude to its length would have been needed to overturn it. So it was a very sturdy vessel. The ark was the biggest vessel ever built in the history of mankind until 1884. It had a displacement tonnage of 20,000 tons. Its available floor space was 95,000 square feet. Its cubit footage, 1.4 million cubit feet. Scholars have concluded that the ark was probably built as a flat-bottomed barge, which gave it maximum capacity, a third more capacity than a normal constructed ship. Now, there are some 17,600 air-breathing animals in the world. If you multiply that by two, you have 35,200 animals 
brought into the ark. If you add to that that seven were brought in of every ceremonially clean animal, you remember that, boys and girls, three pairs, and then one additional one that Noah would use when he came out of the ark to sacrifice to God with thanksgiving, you have roughly 40,000 animals in the ark. Now, boys and girls, if you were to take one of your bed sheets on your bed and you were to lay that on the ground and lay 40,000 of them next to it, you would still have only one-third of the ark full. So that means that the ark had plenty of room, that God was gracious and generous, not just to Noah and his family, but also to the animal kingdom. And that already teaches us a lesson tonight, that God is good and kind to his creatures. He gives space to his creation. He feeds the ravens when they cry, and the cattle upon a thousand hills belong to him. There is spaciousness in God. God is so good. Even to animals in the ark, he gives them room. He gives them his generous kindness. Now, if this is true on the ark for temporary provision, may we not argue from that that God is also generous and good and kind when His creatures who are created after His image, namely man, cry unto Him for spiritual provision. Shall He not hear the needy when they cry. Well, we heard last week that the Lord shut Noah and his family in the ark. They waited, you remember, seven days. And then, on the second month, probably our May, our fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, at least 1,656 years after creation, the heavens begin to open its windows and the heavy rains descend and the springs of the earth are opened and pour forth water. Now maybe you have asked many times, boys and girls, what does this all mean? Obviously this was not a special, not not a normal rain, but it was a special kind of deluge, an inundation of lots of water. What exactly happened? Well, of course, we don't know everything. We can't describe it all, but the Bible does describe quite a bit to us. There, In chapter 7, verse 11, the geological phenomena are described for us. It says there, the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And scholars who have studied this have shown that there must have been volcanic eruption in the subterranean and sub-oceanic places deep in the ocean so that the waters surged to such a measure that tidal waves filled the ocean, filled land 
and see. So we're not talking here about a long period of excessive rain, but we're talking about convulsions in the earth, volcanic eruptions. We're talking about huge mountains of lava being formed and cleavages in the earth being made by the tremendous forces of nature so that the mountains ascend and the valleys descend. And it appears that many large mountains today got their height from the pressures at the time of the flood. Psalm 104 verse 8 refers to the flood going up by the mountains. Or as it says in the marginal in the King James, the mountains ascend and the valleys descend. So the flood is obviously a universal earth-shattering event. It it fills the entire earth, not just a, a region or a locality as some people say today. The whole construction and the whole outfitting and stocking of the ark would have been absurd if the flood happened only in a small area. Besides, the Bible says, doesn't it, boys and girls, that the flood covered the highest mountain in all the earth. And it says, all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. And then too, God promised in Genesis 9 verse 11 that He would never again flood the world. If that promise applied only to a region or to a local area, then God has broken His promise. No, this was a worldwide flood. And the New Testament confirms that. Peter tells us that there were only eight people in all the world that were spared. Genesis 6.17 says, All other flesh died. Secular evidence supports that as well. Perhaps some of you young people have read the book by John Morris called The Ark on Ararat, in which Morris has collected over 200 ancient flood traditions from all around the world, including every continent, inhabitable continent on the globe where people have testified in ancient records and histories of this tremendous flood that has filled the earth. Scientific evidence points to it as well. I would only mention one thing tonight. The marine shells that are found embedded in mountains at 14,000 feet above sea level obviously give support and credence to the idea that a major flood with waters that went that high filled the earth at some point. These shells are found in the mountainous regions in many places around the world. So obviously the Genesis flood has an unparalleled history. It's a shaking of nature itself. The surface of the earth turns into huge masses of displaced water under tremendous pressure. And now to understand that pressure, we need really to go back to Genesis 1, if you will turn with me please, Genesis 1, verses 6 and 7. And we read there, God said on the second day of creation, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. Now, some people used to say the waters above the firmament are the clouds. 
But the clouds are not above the firmament. The clouds are in the firmament. So more recent studies have, have shown, and I think rightly so, that there was a kind of extensive vapor canopy, a vapor canopy that covered the entire world pre-flood. And those that have studied these things have concluded that that vapor canopy could well have been 40 feet deep. And in that case, you see, when God released that vapor canopy upon the earth, it could rain nonstop with a terrible downpour for 40 days and 40 nights as it emptied itself upon the earth. Now, from the time of creation, this water canopy then provided the earth most likely with a tropical climate. A climate that afforded two great advantages. It was a very high concentration of oxygen and also great protection from the rays from outer space. And it appears that that canopy of protection enabled people to live very long lives. That's probably the reason why the pre-flood people lived, many of them, close to a thousand years. But once this canopy was broken up, it caused a great deal of desolation in the earth. But at the same time that all this water was coming down from above, the Bible says, the fountains of the deep had places that were formed from the time of creation, which God released. That probably refers to places of, that resulted when God divided the dry land from the waters. Some of those waters were trapped underground. And up until the time of the flood, there appears to have been no rain on the earth. In fact, you can read this in Genesis 2, 5 and 6. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So it seems that pre-flood, the vegetation of the earth was watered by these underground caverns, which became as fountains supplying the earth with water and moisture. Even the New Testament, Revelation 14, verse 7, speaks of them, speaks of the fountains of waters in the earth. And of course, even today, there are tremendous waters in the earth, in fact, at some places, the earth, the water is deeper than the highest mountain, still today. Well, you see what happens is God releases all this water from above and all this water from beneath. And suddenly this tremendous precipitation, breaking up the fountains of the deep, breaking up the canopy overhead. And for 40 days and 40 nights, it rains and pours and gigantic waves cover the surface of the earth and there's a flood of universal proportions. Forty days, solid. Nothing but torrential downpourings. Philip Henry says it so beautifully. God was six days in making the world, forty to destroy it. For he is slow to anger. 
What a beautiful thought. God held on 1,656 years or perhaps even a few more, sparing his anger. And then for 40 days, he pours out his wrath upon the earth. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. Everything is destroyed. This great rain, except the ark. And the ark is lifted up. And the very waves and wind and rain that God uses to destroy the first world, God uses to preserve the ark. And our text says, it is borne aloft and lifted up above the earth. Oh, what a solemn day. What an amazing sight to see this great ark, this great barge lifted from the ground 450 feet, 75 feet wide, and beginning to float away and all of humanity perishing. People running to the tops of the hills, running to the tops of their homes, running to the tops of the mountains, to the tops of trees, treat people clinging to the ark, but everywhere. They slip, they fall, they jump. Like people jumping from the World Trade Center in desperation. People can no longer hang on to the ark and they fall into the angry ways. And the Bible says all who had breath died in this terrible destruction of the first world. Verses 18 and 19 speak of the waters prevailing. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. The word prevailed there is a strong Greek word that expresses triumph in battle. It's like the waves were declaring their triumph. One commentator put it this way, the terrible chaotic waters are likened to hostile warriors attacking God's creation. And the rhythmic repetition of this term in verses 18 and 19, with the crescendo of the waters, and the repetition in verses 21 through 23 of all and entire and every and every living thing mimics the rising of the waters and the pitching of the ark. So what he's saying is, even as the ark is battered back and forth, look at verses 21 through 23. Listen to the words, all and every. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth. Fowl and cattle and beast and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And every man, 
all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed. Upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark. Every land animal dies. Down, down, down pours the rain. Up, up, up comes the waters. It continues on and on and on till all the hills and all the mountains are covered. 22 feet above the highest mountain. And the ark is carried along, borne up by the mercy of God. Eight people safe in the ark. The windstorm The water pounds. Deep calleth unto deep. But Adam and his family are safe. The great architect, the great designer of the ark, the Lord God, Elohim, Yahweh, the faithful covenant-keeping God, the great giver of redemption, is the great preserver of Noah. Noah is wonderfully spared. His preservation is a beautiful and profound comfort for every true believer hidden in Jesus Christ till this very day. What a picture Noah is riding along on the waters, borne up in the midst of great floods, great adversity. Here in Noah, dear child of God, you have your guarantee that when the waters come to your lips, the waters of affliction, you will be preserved. And when you cry to Jehovah God in the storms of this life, the God of Noah will protect you and preserve you. If you are safely shut in Christ by Jehovah God, separated from the world, belonging to the invisible church, on the ark of safety. You shall ride as strangers and exiles and pilgrims in this world, but you shall ride in safety into a new world, a new heaven, and a new earth. For the day is coming when the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundant peace of God. And he who sits on the throne shall say, as he could say of Noah in the next chapter, Behold, I make all things new. And yet we cannot leave this point, congregation, without warning you as well that though Noah and his family were safe, the commandment which God issued and was not obeyed by the rest of mankind and destroyed them, still comes to you tonight. You heard it also this morning. We must obey God. We must go where God points us. We must go to Christ. We must obey the Gospel of God's dear Son. And God by His Spirit is willing to give us that obedience. And only those who learn to obey, who learn to repent and believe the gospel by grace, 
will be ready when God comes the second time to destroy the second world, not with a flood, but with fire. When he shall roll the world as a scroll of fire, then God shall bear up believers and they shall meet him in the air. He shall bear them up and he shall bear them out. On the New Testament church, the living church, the ark of his salvation in Jesus Christ. You find that so beautifully put, don't you? In 1 Thessalonians it's chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says this, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The Lord in His second coming will lift up above the floods of His wrath all His people, those who have died, those who are yet alive, they shall all be lifted up, borne up into His presence. And this ark here is a type of that preservation. God will give His saints perfect preservation in the great day. One old Puritan put it this way. He said, as the judgment came, Noah and his family were lifted up to heaven. The ark was born up. And so when the judgment will fall upon unbelieving humanity, the wrath of God will be unleashed for the second time in history in universal proportions but those in Christ shall be preserved. Oh, what a day. The day of the flood was. But what a day. The day of Christ's second coming shall be. And on that day, dear children, teenagers, parents, grandparents, you must be in the ark of God. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.